Hello and welcome to the Emotion Lab. We're taking a deep dive into what makes the combination of immersive environments and emotion AI so exciting. Through interviews with experts across the fields of academia, healthcare and technology. And I'm your host, Graham Cox. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Emotion Lab. Today I'm with David Rippard, who is the founder and uh, CEO of Poplar Studio, the UK president of the Virtual Reality and Augmented Reality Association, and has a long and varied and fascinating background in media from Netflix, YouTube, and various other organizations. David, thank you very much for coming on and welcome. Very happy to be here. Thanks, man. David, well, we haven't spoken before, so it's lovely to meet you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've heard a lot about you, but uh, but it's the first time we've actually spoken. And thanks very much for coming on. Obviously, you've got you know you've got this fascinating background and really interesting range of current connections as well. So your involvement with body swaps, for example, is really interesting. The work you're doing in in Poplar and how you see the future of AR and more personalised delivery of augmented reality solutions for for marketing, how marketing uh, applications can benefit from in the moment personalization from using emotional response to content possibly in the future to 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 further improve these ar experiences and obviously as your role in running the uk chapter of the vrara looking at your vision for the future of how you see AR and VR developing in the future and how personalization of those experiences using input back from the individual in terms of what we do, what we engage with, what we like, what we don't like, how that can be used to improve augmented reality experiences in the future. And just your kind of your big vision of how you see that developing and where you see some of the interesting things might happen there, where the problems might be, where the the big wins might be in the future. So that so kind of fairly broad ranging discussion was what I thought that we might go through, starting with some of the more specifics around your insights into um, AR, the AR marketing and uh, uses in uh, in retail and commerce at the as starting point, going through some of those soft skills use cases and your the body swaps would be a really great thing to talk about in that context. And then that ending with that bigger picture. In Poplar, for example, one interesting area to look at is does facial tracking and the use of custom responses for, for facial expressions, does that drive higher engagement, et cetera? So have you, have you got any experience in just using the very basics of understanding that personalization and personalization response? And does that make a difference to the user experience? Does it drive higher engagement? That kind of thing is a very basic level is uh, is really interesting to talk yep. about. So on the AR side, just to frame, of course, is not the use of a headset; it's the use of a mobile phone. Um, yeah. And so yeah. on the on, so we do indeed we do both marketing, advertising applications of AR, and we do e-commerce retail applications of AR, which I think I'll separate for this discussion because they they are different. So on the marketing advertising side, um, at the most basic, the use cases start with things like face filter, which have been around for a couple of years now and have been democratized through platforms like Snapchat. I mean, they're one of the pioneers, I would say, of using AR and letting consumers using AR to remix identity and engage with their platform. So the stories mode that they've launched before Instagram, TikTok, and other platforms where you could share snippets of your day with your friends, you know, they started enabling the front camera and using augmented reality um, tracking your face to uh, indeed remix the identity, transform into animals. I mean, all kinds of different experiences. 
And uh, now that technology has been adopted by others like Facebook and Instagram, as well as TikTok. TikTok's completely blown you know, off. It's huge now since COVID. It's really grown. As people were uh, locked down more and more, we're using social media, we're using augmented reality in an entertaining fashion, I would say. And so um, then the brands came on board because they saw those the huge engagement from consumers using AR and mobile phones, wanted to create their own sort of branded face filters and other types of experiences. And that was allowed on Instagram, for example, in September 2019, and then all the other platforms as well, like TikTok and others. In terms of using the face, so of course, one of the key things is, is using face tracking, not only to identify how a face is composed so that you can serve uh, an overlay of content on top of that face. And that's the principle of remixing your identity. So turning you into another gender or putting an animal face on yourself or beautifying yourself and then whatnot. And manipulating that identity through face gestures is one of the key things that those platforms are doing to keeping people engaged to your point. So for example, you can open your mouth, you can smile, you can raise your eyebrows, you can tilt your head, et cetera. I mean, they're just adding more and more functionalities as days go by to be able to interact with that content. So just to use a silly example, open your mouth and a rainbow will come out of it or um, you know, raise your eyebrows and some other interaction will happen. So yes, um, I think for a lot of those brands and platforms, there's always been a goal of higher engagement just as a basic thing is just to keep people on the platform as long as possible, right? Whether we think that's a yeah. good thing or not is a whole other discussion. <laughs> but yes, for them, there is higher a target of creating higher engagement for customers. So they uh, they want 30 seconds, minutes of you know engagement. So people playing with that filter. And if it's a branded filter, even more, you know, that brand, they want consumers to be spending time interacting with that piece of AR through the mobile phone for as long as possible. Because we're coming from a, a place where media was very passive. You know, it was about watching TV spots. It was about watching YouTube videos, which I've you know, worked at YouTube for a long time. It was yeah. looking at display ads, images. So it was always passive. Even, even YouTube claiming to be a more active format because you could maybe leave comments or subscribe or follow, et cetera. That's, that's not active in the sense of consumers interacting with the content. AR for the first time and VR is enabling consumers to interact with that content in real time. So for those brands on social media, it is about using gestures and emotions to some extent and, and uh, interactions to influence that content and what it's going to look like. And it's also making it more shareable, right? Because in the end, people are want to see themselves on those formats and they want to share that with their friends. So um, the more interactions they'll have, the more they'll be able to express themselves and remix their identities, the more likely they'll be to share that with their friends on that social network. And that will create virality and shareability and that will be what the brand's looking for, essentially. Absolutely. I mean, it's my belief about what what, what drives us in interaction with these experiences really is that desire for uh, for personalization and expression of the individual. And of course, our emotional expressions, our facial expressions are so fundamental to our definition of ourselves and uh, and how we communicate with the world. And using facial expression in whatever form, for, uh, in, in my experience, always drives much higher uh, engagement. It, you know, it, it, it allows interactive experiences to be delivered rapidly. And my 
you know, so my, my background's in uh, in artificial intelligence uh, rather than in uh, so rather than in the use of uh, of motion itself, a field that I've come to uh, quite lately. My my understanding and depth of experience is in uh, is in building the solutions behind that. One of the things that really strikes me uh, about um, AR experiences and 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 in that use of facial tracking is just how easily accessible facial tracking and also facial coding the the uh, classification of expressions from facial tracking how easily accessible that is to everybody the barrier of en- ever for entry for use of expression and emotion and facial movement in apps is now is now quite low meaning that creatives can do all sorts of really fantastic stuff with this across the platforms. So of course that that's been a huge change, right, in the, in the industry because uh, and Poplar Studio, my company, you know, we rely on a talent cloud. So we work with two thousand plus three D designers and AR developers. So they are the ones that the experts that are creating these beautiful experiences. And it has, like you said, the democratization of that content creation on the AR side is due to massive companies, by the way, investing you know millions, or if not more, into their software and making that available publicly to all of these creators, but also anyone who wants to learn how to do that. So, so Facebook, Instagram, they use a, a piece of software called Spark AR. Snapchat have Lens Studio, TikTok have their own software. And indeed they've embedded the face tracking and, and the whole machine learning piece within that studio software. And they make it really easy to have templates in there as well. So I mean, you still need a little bit of experience, I would say, you know, there is still a bit of scripting that you can do to make it really, I like a wow experience, but anyone can now get started and learn how to build these interactions. So it's also leading to a whole new generation of AR content creators um, who are reinventing that sort of self-expression through AR. So it's really interesting what's happening now on social media and also outside of applications. Uh, So web AR is something we're really interested in. Of course, when you think about video and how reliant we were on Flash before and now it's HTML5 and sort of open formats, On the AR side, we're still a bit in a fragmented market where it's closed garden, you know, closed wall gardens with Facebook having their own studio software and whatnot. But in the future, we are hoping to be in an open XR industry where um, it's all going to be web-based, so Chrome, Safari, and other sort of mobile browsers to use AR. So you don't have to download an app, which means less friction for consumer adoption and just wider distribution, basically. So that's the, but that's the social side. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you want to touch on the retail side, that's a a different use case for me, which is still pretty interesting in in terms of face tracking and emotions and interactivity. So that one, I mean, is purely, I would say, ROI based and commercial based. So of course, on the retail side, how do you, how do you learn from your customers? Like how do they engage with their product? How do you take that into account? I think what's really interesting is through AR, you're able to visualize products virtually. Mm. So we do things at Publish Studio like virtual try-ons. So it, it goes from um, virtual makeup, uh, virtual hair, hair coloring, virtual glasses, try-on, hat try-ons, uh, et cetera. So how do you, and in the future, and we started with face because as an AI expert, you might understand that's slightly easier on the machine learning side than the body tracking side. Yes which is coming along and I think it will come along quite well this year. I mean, Snap and TikTok already do body tracking to some extent. Um, and then things like wrist tracking for trying on watches, things like finger tracking to try on jewelry, et cetera, will come along more than it has recently, but face tracking is there. So 
we do that. And, and I think, uh, yeah, brands are really interested to see how people engage with their products. It's that measurement of engagement, which I think is the real power, isn't it? I mean, the, in that ability to analyze the, the user engagement using objective metrics to actually understand whether the user is likes what it is that they're seeing, which is, you know, fundamentally Netflix's model. Uh, underlying the delivery of content is that uh, that ability to personalize and select content and recommend content to the user based on their activity. Yeah, it's, it's data that I've never had before. Also, yeah, it's, it's it's a huge new range of data. And virtual try-on gives you this whole new potential range of data because, by definition, with a virtual try-on, you are you are pointing a camera back at the participant's face. So it gives you access to behavioral and emotional analytics, which aren't uh, available through a standard um, web browser interaction where keystrokes, movements, time on uh, hovering over particular locations, these kind of softer um, indirect metrics have to be used to understand what the users properly engage with. With a yeah. virtual try-on, the opportunity to really get deeper understanding of that gut emotional response to the glasses, the hat, the the coat, the you know whatever it might be that's being tried on, it becomes really interesting. Yeah, I'll use another example, which is using the back camera of a mobile phone to place uh, products virtually, or yeah, I mean using the back camera essentially. Yeah, I mean, it could be tablets, and in the future, I mean you have to also that's another discussion, but you have to think about devices, right? Because devices will evolve into AR glasses and lenses and, and things like that. But using the back camera, let's use an example of you're placing a mobile phone. A virtual mobile phone on the table of a new model that's just coming out, or you're placing a piece of furniture, you know, in your environment in real scale, or you're placing a TV or some piece of electronic. You want to check that it's going to fit in your room. You want to customize it by changing the color, looking at the model, etc. And um, using AR, you'll also be able to have hotspots where you have interactions and you can blow out the model, look inside the model. What's what? What is it made of? What's the mechanics of the thing? or learn about maybe the fabric or learn about how it's made, sustainability, things like that. And you're gonna get rich overlays, either text, videos, images, and whatnot of that virtual augmented reality product in your environment. So I think there's there's a huge opportunity there as well of using the face and the emotions, possibly tracking that at the same time. And for the, the brand, it's not just about seeing if the customer's happy or not, right? I think there's a huge piece of analytics there. Let's say, the example of a phone of seeing what parts of the phone the consumer is interacting with and what they find most interesting from a learning point of view about the product. And it can also be a sales tool for those people that might be selling that device in a store, right? So think about how the end brand or manufacturer is presenting that on their own websites and selling their products. They could learn in real time what customers actually want to interact with as part of that device promotion or, or sort of marketing or how people visualize that in that virtual environment. And they can in real time change the way that they present that product or sell that product in a store environment, learning from those emotions and that interaction. Yeah, it, it potentially offers a an incredible new set of data to personalize recommendations and deliver targeted information to individual. Obviously, that, that process of uh, ever deeper data and understanding of the of the participant has both benefits to the commercial organization and and to the individual in getting actually targeted recommendations but it also comes with 
risks as well in terms of increased erosion of in personal privacy and and that ever greater sucking of data that defines the the individual that we are how do how do you see that balance you know with your role both in the industry and and as a commercial provider of solutions where where do you see that balance between risk and reward in uh, in access to personal data yeah i mean it's a very complicated discussion uh, you know I, I think that discussion has been around already for decades now around advertising and you can see what's happening around cookies and google and the changing policy right there um, so I think it's the same conundrum on on the visual side or the computer computer vision side, in the sense of what are we as individuals okay to share privately with corporations in order to get more customized, relevant information? How useful is it going to be in our day to day life? And I'm putting aside the whole policing aspect of things because that's that gets really complicated of, about how this information is shared. But on the corporate side, you know, I, I mean, I'm quite comfortable with technology. I know it's very different from other people, and it's not a judgment. But for me, um, and it's, go- it's been Google's vision for, for a long time now, it's about making information useful to people, and it's ma- about making ex- information accessible. So in their, in their mind, the vision in a few years from now is, that, is visual search, and it's about walking around in your environment and getting rich, useful information around you that will serve you, right? So just to use examples, it might be, visually that you'll see um, your meetings that day and they'll give you an itinerary and it warn you when to leave your house and you'll go outside and I'll show you on the bus stop, you know, the information about the next stop, stop and when it's coming and it might, you might stop by a shop or an outside that shop, you'll get information about that store, the ratings of that restaurant, you'll see a vir- virtual menu of that store and you might get discounts visually when you step inside your Starbucks and promotions. I mean, it gets a bit dystopian, of course, because then it's about information overload, which is a different question. Um, but it's about making it useful and all accessible in one place comfortably. And, and that's where AR glasses come in and serve that purpose as well. Because right now with the phone, it's slightly uncomfortable, right? To be yeah. your hand out and, and looking around and potentially running into people or falling down. But having those glasses on your head and you're in, a, in your meeting now and you see all the LinkedIn information overlaid on your glasses about that person you're, that you're meeting here. You're on a date and you're seeing the tindermatch.com information. <laughs> now it gets really dystopian, but that's, I guess that's the intent. And so how, how much information are you ready to share in order to get that usefulness, right? And, and what's the counter to that? Are you going to be left behind because you're still going to be using the mobile phone screen or your computer to obtain all that information? And how much time are you saving by accessing that information. Now, of course, if you get into what China is doing and, and you know how they're using computer vision and AI to track people's faces and to police using that information, that gets really scary. So when you know that a Facebook and Google is building that world, replicating that world and potentially scanning your faces, and there's been a debate around Oculus Quest, which is a VR headset from Facebook. Yes. They've said they're not storing that information. They said they're not using it for now, underlined for now. So of course, there's that question of like, you know, if the police, the government sends them a letter and asks for that information, do they have an obligation to provide that? And how is that going to be used? So a lot of questions around that. Yeah, a lot of questions. And uh, what intrigues me is this, the, if you if you just do the thought experiment where the ultimate expression of this, uh, of, of the collation of our likes and dislikes, our behavioral 
phenotype, if you like, where that could lead to. So if we imagine a world where increasingly our interactions are, uh, are digital, I mean, uh, today, you and I, David, just as as most people in the UK at the, at the very least are today, we're communicating digitally. You know, we, we communicate over social media, we communicate over email, we're currently on video, etc. Um, and a, a system, a digital assistant that learns your behavioral profile and your emotional likes and dislikes can eventually start undertaking actions on your behalf. Uh, can start doing things in the digital world for you in order to save you time and the like. And that that concept of the digital twin, as it pertains both not just to the recreating the world digitally, but also recreating the individual digitally, could eventually lead to some level of autonomy in that digital persona in, 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 in its ability to help you. But if we don't own our own behavioral data, if the corporates own that behavioral data, are ultimately, are we giving away our identity? Well, that's a philosophical question. <laughs> it's an interesting. <laughs> I feel one. I'm back in school now and <laughs> have to write a paper. Yeah, I mean that's right. I, there's a couple of examples, of course. I mean, on the retail side, I think retail is going to change massively. By the way, and you know, a lot of those big stores have been shutting down, and the and the high street's been shutting down. It's going to all be transformed. So, the next retail store might be a capture store where you step into that store and you're gonna get volumetric capture of yourself through a dome of cameras and whatnot. And and you're gonna have that digital twin stored somewhere in the server, as you said. And that can be then used by yourself to ease shopping online through e-commerce because it already knows your body type and your, I mean, the emotions to some extent based on what you like or not in terms of colors and style and whatnot. And indeed that digital twin can shop for yourself. In the VR worlds, I mean, going further down the line, the Ready Player One environment where Right now, it's all about avatars, and it's, it's pretty lo-fi because it's just about recruiting an avatar of yourself, but in the future, it will be a replicate of yourself through that scanning. And I do think you're right that emotions will play a really huge role in expressing ourselves. And, and so, indeed, there could be a digital twin doing something they don't know about um, or having a conversation of your own. But again, it's back to like, how much time are we saving? You know, how are we, how useful is that to us? I don't really have that philosophical. It's, uh, it's, it's just an interesting philosophical thought, although it would be interesting. So in your, one of the things we haven't really mentioned as yet is that um, you are uh, the UK president of the VRARA, the Virtual Reality and Augmented Reality Association. Uh, as a as a kind of um, industry body, do you do you see the VR ARA as having a any kind of role in understanding how data should be managed across this new uh, platform of uh, of technology? Yeah, I mean we're a wide ranging uh, body. We have four thousand plus members around the world, so they range from universities to government to um, investors to startups and, and corporates who are doing from hardware to software, from AR to VR. So it's very large. Uh, of course there are, so there's a committee around uh, security policy. And so they're definitely looking at that, but there are committees for all, all types of use cases. So also training, education, retail, commerce, et cetera. But definitely it's one of the subjects that people are thinking about, um, especially universities as well, people that do research or companies like yourselves, which are a member of the association. So. I think it's really great to keep thinking about that as we also push for the expansion of adoption of AR and VR throughout the UK and throughout the world. Um, you know, it's good to think about how to support the X system first and foremost as we ask these questions, just because we still need to educate a lot of stakeholders. You know, we still need to educate a lot of the investors out there that it's 
the moment is now that AR, VR adoption is now throughout different sectors from gaming to uh, retail commerce and soft skills training, which we might talk about. So I think that's our, our first goal is really to make sure that more companies get on board and start developing products, that more investors feed the ecosystem and finance these companies, that more government sheds light on it and supports it through grants and public funding as well in partnership with the universities. So there's a lot to do still to grow the ecosystem. Definitely. Yeah, I'd like to come back in a second just to talk about your vision of, of where you see um, XR uh, moving forwards in the in the next few years. But you mentioned briefly about the soft skills uh, piece there, which I'm really interested to explore. So I know that another one of the roles that you have is that you are a non-exec on the board of, uh, of Body Swaps. Uh, it sounds like a really fascinating organization. Can you just give us a brief overview of what Body Swaps does? Yeah, so it's an amazing company um, that was founded in order to help scale skills training through VR. And essentially, if you think about traditional soft skills training, so soft skills training might be leadership training, might be against biases, might be um, interview training, all sorts of skills that you need in your workplace. Um, and so traditionally, you'd fly around. If you're a big company, you'd fly people around for an offsite training. You know, you'd pay loads of money to fly them on airplanes to remote look. I mean, at Google, I used to fly over to the U.S. for offsites, uh, and they'd fly hundreds of people and have them in hotels, and then they'd have a shove them in a big room, and they they pay a lot of money for a third party to train people physically. So, sort of what we call classroom uh, training, right? Then okay. you have then you have e-training and and sort of doing that online. So you have the boring 1.0 slides that some companies have developed, and then you go through these for hours and you answer quizzes and then you hope that people are going to retain information. And then you have VR training. So, and that, that's about uh, using a headset to recreate a virtual environment. So you might be in a virtual office that looks like your actual office. It might be an exotic location. You might be on the planet remotely or on a beach, you know, it doesn't really matter. I, I think it's about creating a realistic or non-realistic environment to engage people. But most importantly for body swaps, um, the principle of body swaps is that you're, in a real case situation with um, 3D models representing other people. And you get to um, look at something taking place that is not cool. For example, it might be a discriminatory conversation between a manager and someone else. And then you get to feedback afterwards. And, and then you get to body swap. So the principle is that you'll see yourself afterwards giving that feedback from another perspective. And it's also using um, AI to, to listen to the keywords that you're using and to sort of recognize also emotional sort of um, information that you're providing, how you're, re you're reacting and how you're feeding back in order to provide recommendations on how to improve that, that feedback. And so it's building retention of information. It's also helping you practice several times if you want. It's gamifying the whole experience. And simply, I mean, there's been reports of studies from PwC and other companies that shown that this VR training is up to 250% more efficient than you know traditional in-person or e-training. So I think we're on the cusp of just huge change in that sense. Also talking about ROI, I mean, for companies to be able to order coupled headsets and to use that software as a, a sort of off-the-shelf solution through body swaps and train hundreds of people in a company 
in turns is going to make it a lot more ROI positive. You might have to apply them around. Really scales. Yeah, exactly. It's, you can really scale that training. Yeah. The scaling side, the fact that this is a replicable software-based solution obviously makes total sense. I'm really intrigued to understand how you see the uh, the balance required, though, in order to deliver that sense of human connection between uh, the, the videos I've seen of body swaps. It tends to be largely uh, one-to-one conversations, whether that's um, you know leadership discussions or uh, employee management or, or whatever. And I guess the trick there in the developing the solution is to walk the line between not falling into the uncanny valley on one side and trying not to get too realistic, but on the other side, still making sure that, that the individual involved feels that real human connection with the avatar they're, they're, they're talking to. How, how how, how has that worked out? And has that actually been a problem in, in, in getting that right? Do you see that human connection or when in the users? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, so, the, I mean, they, they have experts developing um, game quality models of, of people. Um, so that, I think, already really helps being engaged and feeling a realistic environment. I mean, just when you play um, AAA games, for example, you know, these are just expertly created through Unity, Unreal Engine, or, or other types of engines. Is, is already pretty engaging. I mean, there's debates about how engaging it is for kids. You know, and is it too realistic? Actually, <laughs> so, um, but that's on purpose, actually. And you know, rather than using video or using holograms of people, right now it is to, to do this in 3D. Um, but when you swap, I mean, I've done it myself a few times. When you swap and look at yourself, even if it doesn't look like yourself, it's still your voice. It's already pretty engaging and pretty. You you really feel connected to the people that you watch and to the person that is supposed to be yourself giving that feedback. And actually, I find it actually better not for it not to look like yourself. Okay. Because it, it creates that empathy, right? And 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 many people like Chris Milk, who's one of the pioneers in VR, he he had this company. He's worked with the New York Times and created these VR documentaries in Syria and years years ago already. And when you have these kids in Syria looking at you, face, they're looking at the camera, but they, you feel they're looking at you when yes. you're in the car. That chills chills you completely. I mean, that creates that empathy. It's an empathy engine, as Chris Milk has said in the past. Uh, absolutely. That empathy engine, that ability to literally walk a mile in somebody else's shoes is one of the real powers of VR. And I can see how playing through that experience, that one-to-one experience, and then being able to sit yourself in the other person's shoes to understand your own performance. Definitely. That's extraordinarily powerful, actually. Yeah. That ability to understand your 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 own behaviors and expressed emotions as they were, and, that, and from that, learn to improve those, the soft skills, so not just what you delivered, but, but how you delivered it, which as I understand it, is the core function, the purpose of the body, body swap software. Yeah, so to use an example, they, they have a module on interviewing skills, and this is geared uh, more at uh, younger people, and they're collaborating with colleges to to uh, be able to provide that. And so you could see how for younger people, it helps create that um, confidence as well, right? And and that because they're training and they can do it several times, it's just practice. Practice makes perfect. So, it's about uh, practicing in a safe environment and it's about building out confidence because you're doing it over and over again. And it reminds me about other use cases in healthcare. I mean, you're, you're close to that space as well, but people are using VR to against phobias, for example, to place exactly. people in that environment. Yeah, the, uh, our, one of our core um, use cases and the, you know, the major thread in our 
research program is building objective measures of emotion, emotional response and stress response to aid and improve ther thera therapeutic interventions. And, and the kind of the, the, the core platform that we're working on is one that, that today is to enable therapists and their patients to connect remotely using uh, immersive, immersive technologies as a way to do that and to execute therapy in simulated environments that drive the right kind of emotional response from the patient whilst measuring just the level of trigger that you're delivering. And of course, a major part of that is the, the therapist behavior themselves. You know, the, the, the therapist and the interaction that they have with their patient kind of defines that whole session. So whilst the primary visual and audio input to the individual might is in simulation, putting them into an environment that triggers their phobia in a safe way so that they can practice their responses. The communication they have with the therapist is really key. And one of the things that we uh, will be looking at in the future is that same kind of connection that uh, the body swaps have done so effectively in how the therapist can be represented in that environment and how that those behaviors can be modeled and trained and improved themselves. Uh, I, I, when I say that, I you know, point out this is a research program for, for my company, MTech. We're not a content developer per se. We work with partners and external organizations to develop these solutions. But in developing those objective measures that can be used both for improving the outcome of the patient who's going through therapy, but also improving the performance of the therapist, these are really, really interesting to us. Fascinating stuff. And I recommend that anybody listening goes and checks out bodyswaps.co as a really um, interesting example of training soft, soft skills and the use of behavior as a primary training function within a simulated environment. So I, I just wanted to come back, David, to your view of the future. You know, you've been involved in media uh, your entire career and increasingly in the last few years focused on uh, AR and VR uh, and, and le leveraging the cutting edge of that in, in various different commercial applications. I'm really interested to, to understand where you think the VR and AR industry is going in the next five years and particularly how that pertains to things like the enterprise solutions. So training and healthcare solutions, uh, improvements in education, et cetera, and what that might mean to us, the, the ordinary people in the street uh, over the next few years. Well, like I said, I've been in the media tech industry for, for 19 years. I used to be at Netflix and Google, YouTube, et cetera. So for, for me, like I said earlier, it's really about creating an engaging format and something that people can not only use for entertainment and media, but actually to change lives and something that's useful. So on the one side, there's what we discussed, which is democratization of content creation. So I definitely down the road in five years, I think everyone will be able to create these experiences for AR, VR, a lot you know, easier through templates and through platforms like Poplar Studio and other types of platforms that are coming along. So that, that's one trend is on the development side. On the other side, um, use cases and particularly enterprise, it's already happening, to be honest. It's not so futuristic to say that healthcare is using it to facilitate surgeries. How do you overlay X-ray, MRI results, for example, through AR glasses like HoloLens and, and other that that's already being used by surgeons, you know, across yeah, the world absolutely. and changing lives because they're be they're able to be more precise than through the traditional methods of looking at MR results or x-rays on the sides by having that overlay or by teleconferencing with another surgeon across the world through those glasses. Things like automotive, I mean, all those key manufacturers are now adopting 
AR so that consumers, when you're driving the next car, like Audi has a new car coming out, the Q5 will have overlays on the windshield. Uh, but also for designing new models, they're all now designing in VR rather than you know through traditional software methods. Um, with things like tourism, the next sort of places you visit, you'll have AR glasses to do that. So there, you know, countless sectors are being disrupted and will adopt now AR and VR. I think just countless disruptions, um, what Peter Damandis would call exponential uh, technology. And Absolutely. <laughs> merging of AR, VR with AI and potentially with 5G, because we, we're talking about real-time access to content and data wherever you are through 5G, right? Faster than yeah. Wi-Fi. That, I mean, that's the exponential technology there is those three, four technologies merging together. Um, so a few years from now, you're talking about AR glasses, hopefully being mainstream because Apple has their mixed reality headset coming out next year. They're now saying 2023 potentially for AR glasses, but Facebook have their own this year. So we'll see a lot more sort of comfort for consumers to be wearing these AR glasses down the line. And maybe five years from now, we'll have contact lenses. I mean, might be more, might be 10 years, <laughs> who knows? But yeah, it'll be about seamlessly getting that overlay of information wherever you are and uh, and getting that that life sort of augmented and more useful. It does seem like an inevitable transition for the screen, doesn't it? I mean, it, it may take time because technology has to develop to 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 meet our expectations. But you know, we've we've started with our screens being shared cinema size uh, and and fifty feet wide down. Uh, uh, from our tables onto our laps, into our hands. Exactly. The, the ultimate expression of that has to be to interface a screen directly between our eyes and the rest of the world. So moving to the face is, uh, uh, is an inevitable step once the technology to miniaturize and deliver the power and capability is actually there and ready to go. Yes, and computer vision is part of that as well because allowing for this next-gen computing platform where it's not just about manual input, right, to text, yeah, another. It's about visual input, Na naturalistic input. The the AI digital assistant being able to understand us in the way that we naturally express ourselves, which is ultimately not through a QWERTY keyboard. Exactly, that's right. David, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. I loved your insights into uh, the whole area of VR, AR, and uh, and behavioral monitoring. Thank you very much for coming on. If anybody wants to find out more about Poplar Studio or Bodyworks or uh, or to get in contact with yourself, where should they go? Well, poplar.studio or bodyswaps.co is the place to go. And if you want to know more about the VRAR Association, it's the VRARA.com. And thanks you, thank you, Graham and, and Tech, for what you're doing for the industry as well. Thank you very much, David. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Emotion Lab. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us across social media to keep up with the latest in Emotion AI. Thanks.